Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock write-up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. Now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding. Thank you so much for tuning in. Mr. Jeffrey Gannon, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It is going great. We are sitting in our new... Should we call this a studio? I guess you could call it yeah, a studio. studio. You know, it's a, it's a little bit of a work in progress. Um, but we're sitting here in our office in a new spot. Um, obviously, uh, in my old office where you could see the street view, it was kind of messing with the lighting a little bit um, mm-hmm. and like the quality of the video. Uh, so we're happy to be in here today. Hey, if you're not following me on Twitter, you definitely should be following me at Focused Compound. And check out all the work that we've been pumping out on YouTube. Um, we are pretty much uploading a video a day. Yeah. Um, somebody said to me the other, they're like, man, you've been pumping out a ton of content. And I was like, that's the greatest compliment that anybody can give me. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're doing three videos a week on everything investing related. So it's been a lot of fun. So make sure you hit that subscribe button there. And then of course, if you like the work we're doing here, uh, definitely be sure to um, you know support by leaving a rating and review. That goes a long way. So one of the most popular videos that we did recently um, was the video about how to read a cash flow statement. And I think there's a lot of people People that are interested in this just because accounting for some individuals can just be a very, I mean, maybe it's a simple concept, but actually relaying it to how to invest and like how to interpret mm-hmm. certain accounting things for investing, I think is kind of complicated maybe. Okay. Um, you know, so I think it's good to continue on with this series. And today we're going to be going over the balance sheet. Um, you know, so obviously balance sheet, you start off really as more of like a gramite, I guess right. you could say. And obviously he focused a lot on the balance sheet. Yep. So you know, maybe just kind of give us a snapshot of the first things you look for that stand out to you when looking at a balance sheet. And we are going to be using Apple's Q3 balance sheet if anybody wants to follow along. So go for it. Yeah. So the first thing that I notice is if there's a lot of cash. Um, The second thing is usually comparing current assets to total liabilities. Got it. So an important thing about how much if they have extra cash, would be that um, you could basically take their current assets, subtract their total liabilities, and if that number is greater than their cash, yep. um, then their cash is probably all surplus. Yeah, it's, right? a, it's a sign of a very solvent business, right. as you could yeah. say. Yeah. And so that's a very quick way of calculating it. Um, it. It's also just a very safe business generally if you're going to see current assets exceeding uh, total liabilities by a lot. Um, I don't pay a lot of attention to the property plan and equipment as a so any of the fixed assets, the non current assets as um, being something that's going to help you in terms of the uh, the safety of the business and things like that. So you're going to get that either from current assets or from cash flows and things like that. Um, obviously, a company that has uh, losses or something might be still in a risky position, even if current assets exceed total liabilities. But as long as it's making money every year, has positive cash flow, then you're probably not going to have that problem. Got it. Okay, so so you like to take the total current assets and that it covers the total liabilities of the business. Yeah, and obviously, them, yeah. yeah, and that obviously shows that if you know the current assets, which what a current asset is, what could be converted to cash mm-hmm. uh, relatively quickly, if that could cover all of the liabilities of the business, yeah, that's a very good sign of a, a very 
I guess, well-capitalized business, right? Yeah, so it's going to tell you right away, and that there might be excess cash. Yeah. So if you look, and even if the company has a lot of cash, some companies will say, uh, some investors will say that a company has net cash if it has more cash than debt. Yeah. But the truth is, I don't, you know, that that might not be as, um, you might not be as sure that it does have a lot of net cash unless you see it covering current uh, assets uh, without the cash, current assets would still exceed total liabilities. If current assets still exceed total liabilities without the cash, that's definitely excess cash. Uh Uh-huh. Got it. Okay. So then what do you like to see, I guess, more so? So moving down to long-term assets, you you spoke a little bit about PP&E, how you don't really worry too much about it. Right. Um, And now I'm guessing you meant that as because the solvency, right? It's not a positive. So- I do look at it in terms of how it's going to hurt your return on capital, uh-huh. things like that. Yeah. Got it. So like, what do you mean by that? You don't want to see that be a big number. Okay. If it's a big number, it's a problem. And, and that's because we like wear like what asset light businesses that yeah, produce a ton exactly. of cash flow. Because yeah. you know that you're going to have to replace that probably mm-hmm. equipment. So you're going to have to do CapEx in future years to replace that. Yeah. Got it. So when you're looking at uh, businesses receivables, mm-hmm. for example, what are you looking for in that line item? Just how big it is, generally. So how big it is, um, how big it is versus the rest of the balance sheet total, just eyeballing it. Uh, you Also, if you've seen what sales are from the income statement, that's also important. But but um, generally just seeing in what the relationship is between receivables and inventory receivables and the liabilities that you see there, how big an item it is. Um, receivables are – so, I mean, if the business isn't performing well, receivables are uh, – a form of safety, right? Because if the business had to be liquidated or something, that would be, uh, or just to shrink, that would be something that's going to turn into cash and going to turn into cash at a very high rate. It's yeah. almost as good as cash. But in terms of an ongoing business, receivables are not a positive. They tie up money that would otherwise be in cash. And so you don't want to see that be a big number in terms of your uh, looking for returns in the stock. But if you're looking at it as a net net or you're just seeing if there's a lot of safety and stuff, then absolutely, yeah, a lot of receivables mean that it's safer. Yeah. Sure. So I guess we could talk a little about that for a little bit. So net nets. What are you looking mm-hmm. for on the balance sheet when you are looking for a net net? The best is to have it all be cash. Okay. And the second best would be cash and receivables. Much, much worse is cash receivables and inventory. Okay. Um, I think Graham broke it down as sort of like 100 cash is worth like 100% of what it says it is. Receivables yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. 85%. Mm-hmm. Inventory, maybe 50%. Um, you have to remember inventory is carried at the lower of um, its uh, cost or what they think they can realize the value for. Receivables are net of um, the expected you know, doubtful accounts, right? I was going to say, like, what are your thoughts, I guess, when... Okay, so if you're looking at a net-net, maybe yeah. it's uh, in a favor- unfavorable industry, maybe okay. the company is a bit unfavorable right now. Yeah. So how do you think about inventory then? So if the business itself is unfavorable, yes. does that mean that that inventory, you have to haircut that by, you know, to be conservative, a pretty decent amount because it's already unfavored in general? So maybe that inventory is not worth as much as it is on the books? Or it what depends on what that? form the inventory is in. Got it. So we talked about a company recently that the inventory, a large amount of it is probably Rolexes that yeah. were acquired uh-huh. at like wholesale type values. That inventory is fine because the company could always sell it. It could always be moved around. Uh, you know, it has a very high uh, value compared to its weight and stuff. It's easy to sell anywhere in the world. So it could, there's a market for it. It would be very easy to liquidate that. Um, on the other hand, things like say inventory at you know Sears or something is pretty much worthless because um, it it's already it, it, it's not very good inventory that you have it's too spread out in terms of where it is um, it's not easy to get rid of all of it at once that way um, a great example of that is like the worst inventory you could have would be like um, fashion inventory or or like toy inventory in fact I remember in the book the everything store right yeah, yeah. they talk a little bit about how Jeff bad bezos. amazon's experience it's, was it's with... pronounced bezos not bezos for everybody that okay. pronounces it like that so um the i think Sorry, they like 
they got maybe 10 or 20 cents on the dollar for the toys that they had to get yeah. rid of yeah, because yeah, they yeah. bought a ton of toys that made a terrible mistake in doing it. Um, and it's seasonal and they're worthless. Like right after Christmas, if you have that and you have to sell 5,000 of these things suddenly, you know, and, uh, the offers that you'll get are, you know, a tiny fraction of what, uh, you would buy it for. So, you know, uh, it, it, there's some cases, I mean, probably playing equipment. There's some cases where you have to pay someone to take it away. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it's not worth a lot. Um, uh, so it depends on the quality of it. But like in other cases, the quality could be very high. I mean, I've seen companies where the inventory is in the form of, um, uh, you know, the inventory could be in the form of Rolexes. That's like a great thing to have. Holds their value. Yeah. But I've also seen things that are, you know, diamonds, gold, any of those things that's very easy to predict. But even things that aren't quite as easy, that could be things like steel and stuff. You know, th there's real cost with getting rid of them, but you could kind of see what the value is there. There's also issues about like um, the inventory accounting, whether they're using LIFO or FIFO and sure. things like that. Yeah. And now obviously you could get all that information in the notes. Yeah. So you read the notes to the inventory and the inventory will break down the form that the inventory is in. So um, finished goods would be the best kind of inventory that you have that you're ready to sell, you know. Um, then you have like a work in process inventory, work in progress inventory, and you'll also have just raw materials yeah. in there. Mm -hmm. And depending on the company, some of that early stuff could be very not valuable. I actually wrote up a, something about a company that way where I was concerned about the inventory position. They had a huge build in inventory, and not only that, it wasn't finished inventory. It was a very large build in the very early stage inventory, which for the kind of thing they were doing, is like not having a very high value mm -hmm. um so it's concerning that way and I, I just sort of didn't like that and the company uh that, that company the auditor wasn't very good and also they were barring against the inventory so i wondered if there were some uh, things associated with that like if they were stating the inventory incorrectly to have a better ability to borrow or something mm -hmm. but because that's one thing you have to remember that uh, co some companies you have to read how they're borrowing money because some will be borrowing against receivables yeah, inventory sure. things like mm -hmm. that yeah what are your thoughts of like when you see land and stuff like that on the on the books? that's great that's the best thing that you can find and that's why you spend a lot of time to find out about well yeah. it's illiquid mm -hmm. but it holds its value very well sure the first thing is how it's recorded on the balance sheet so it's almost always going to be recorded at a value that is lower than its actual value today yeah because in the united states you're not going to be writing the value of land down under gap but um you're not gonna be writing it up either mm -hmm. uh this is different in some other places so you're not gonna be writing it up and that means that just inflation over time will mean that the land will be uh, more valuable probably yeah. mm -hmm. so i've seen companies um i mean we've talked about some companies maui land and pineapple uh cool the timber company um that carry it land at 100-year-old valuations or something like yeah. that. But I've even seen things just like a company headquarters that was carrying it at um, – I saw a company that was carrying something at $50,000. It was in New Jersey. And I knew – from New Jersey originally, so I knew a little bit about it. And I figured that it was worth, you know – many times that um mm -hmm. it could have been worth close to a million dollars or something yeah. more likely um and then you you look up the uh, property records county records usually in the u.s which um, is all public information yep and but it's different for every county and everything there's no central land registry for all that stuff so you're just gonna have to find out type in what county you think it's in try to find the parcel number or something like that so you'll just type in every every possible iteration of the name of the company looking for it um very old records are usually they're very commonly put under different names like because they were they probably were written down or something they weren't computerized originally so if you're looking at things back in the 50s and stuff like there's a company that's uh, liquidating called paradise so some of its land is listed as paradise fruit company sometimes they do like fruit cups and stuff right, right. Yeah. uh they do uh, um candied fruit like uh for um 
uh, fruitcakes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Different ingredients for fruitcakes. So they, so um, like very small company. Yeah, and it's liquidating. But to find their land records, you'll notice that some of it is under like Paradise Fruit Company, Paradise Fruit Co, Paradise. Uh, you know, um, and then there's different ones where things are put in parentheses, commas behind it, whatever. In more recent years, usually it's computerized and it's much more standardized. But you're going to find things like that. The same thing when I looked up things about NACO, there's slightly different variations on the name. So you have to be careful about how you do that. Mm -hmm. um, but that's true for all sorts of records. It's true for legal records. It's true for all sorts of um, government records that you have to try all different variations on the name and stuff. Yeah. Sure. So a lot of time spent looking at land, look at the satellite images of it, try to figure out what is around it and get an idea of it that way. Definitely look at the tax appraisal. And then also you'll try to Google around to figure out um, in that county or in that state or whatever, whether the how similar the appraisals tend to be to the market value, you know, because in some places there'll be a tendency to have the appraisals be way below the market value or sure. something like yeah. that. Yeah. Then we do that with Howard Hughes, right? Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Howard Hughes Corporation. Yeah. Um, that owns a lot of real estate in New York and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 And also Texas as well. Houston area. Okay. Let's go on to uh, the current liabilities. Okay. And obviously there's accounts payable. And this is, of course, like I said, Apple, uh, 2000. Um, 19 Q3 earnings. Uh, deferred revenue. Obviously, that's a good sign of float. Yeah, deferred revenue is a great sign of float. That's something that you want to see all the time. So what is deferred revenue for those that don't? Uh, deferred don't. revenue is just um, it's uh, payments that you've received, but you haven't earned yet. Mm -hmm. So basically, it's... Um, so you received the cash, you received but you haven't cash. booked it as revenue yet. You haven't booked it as revenue. And the reason why you haven't booked it as revenue is because of the way that gap matches um, your costs, your expenses, and uh, your revenue. So for instance, the classic example is like a subscription thing. If you take a subscription on January 1st, even if the uh, customer isn't allowed to get a refund or whatever, mm -hmm. then at, you will be providing the service for 365 days. Then you'll be just booking that revenue over time. So that entire it time off that you do it. Over right, because your yeah. expenses are going to be equal for like each day, basically. That and obviously that's thing. a sign of float because the company has the cash in hand today Correct. or in-house today that they could do stuff with, but they don't have to technically pay it out or whatever. Right. In a yeah. sense, they're underreporting their earnings. They're, mm -hmm. they're not underreporting it so much as they're reporting it later. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, okay, we can move down with Apple commercial paper. This is a sign of current liability. Yeah, so commercial paper, I don't like to see generally. Um, there's a reason why Apple's doing it and stuff like that. But um, commercial paper is a way of borrowing that I don't like as much. It's a financial liability that um, you're using in place of debt. So, I mean, we could get into more about debt, but in general, I don't have a problem with companies having a lot of debt. I have a problem that they borrow too short and have to refinance too often, so, and they hold too little cash. On and, and commercial paper, because it is on the current liabilities part, obviously, it's a shorter term. It's very short term. That, it's the yeah. kind of thing that would go terribly uh, difficult to refinance in a financial crisis. It's the kind of thing that, like... Uh, the fact that GE was using it was the kind of thing that would cause them problems in the financial crisis. Uh, very, very high-quality companies can use commercial paper, and there's many reasons why they might do it. I don't know why Apple's doing exactly just to lower their cost of borrowing if it has something to do with where their um, uh, tax stuff is, that they have money in other countries and they want to have liabilities to be able to use cash here, mm -hmm. things like that. I don't know. But, um, yeah, it, it, with smaller companies, you're not going to see that they issue commercial paper. So when you were just saying that you don't have problems with companies uh, using debt, right? maybe let's expand on that a little bit. Sure. So long-term fixed debt, I have no problem with. 
So lots of long-term fixed debt, but that's not what companies do. They used to, a long time ago, uh, issue a lot of bonds, long-term bonds at fixed rates with maturities that were um, fairly equal over time, a lot of the time. So, you know, you would have things maturing in five years from now and six years from now and seven years from now or five years and 10 years and 15 years. And it'd be fairly easy to refinance each of those things. We talked about a company recently. Um, I don't think it was on the podcast. I think it was off air, uh, Sydney airport. Mm-hmm. And I was saying how they did a fairly good job compared to most companies today, but not as good as I'd like to see in terms of, um, making sure that they spread out so that in any one year they never had more than like 10 or 15% of their debt coming due. But yeah. they had huge amounts of um, liabilities, yeah, like levered, right? six or seven times EBITDA or something. Yeah. Like that's just standard for them what they would be aiming yeah. for. That's not a highly levered position. That's just what they always want to be at. Um, airport's obviously very uh, safe business to put that kind of debt on. But uh, yeah, so generally my problems are that companies don't hold enough cash. And that they do things like use commercial paper or use um, bank loans and things that are fairly short term. And so they have to be refinanced. My big concern is that a large amount of refinancing will have to come due in the same year. Mm-hmm. Let's say the stock drops a lot. Let's say they don't have a lot of cash flows or something in that year. It's suddenly become very expensive to refinance. Uh, if the company thinks, okay, well, we'll issue stock. Uh, the stock's going to be very cheap, so it's going to be a huge dilution Terrible, that year. Yeah. yeah, so there's just things that the timing can be really bad by doing that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Now, when you are looking at companies that are carrying debt or maybe just right. a lot of debt, um, what are your thoughts on like EV or I'm sorry, um, debt to like EBITDA? I mean, how do you typically think about that? Is there like a limit on what you like to see? Uh, it depends on the business. So it's like a fair. service company, for example, like uh, an Omnicom, which is an ad agency, is a very capital-like business. It could sure. sustain a lot more debt in theory. Yes. So if you have free, first thing is if you have free cash flow every single year, you're going to be a lot safer. If you don't have free cash flow every single year, it's risky to use debt. Yeah. Uh, because you might need a cash infusion into the business in some years. So that's a huge difference. Uh, in general, I think I've said before, three times debt to EBITDA is fairly safe in the sense that not necessarily that whether I think it's safe or not, but I think you would still find banks that would be willing to lend to you as long as you stay under that. So yeah. if you have one, two times, and then you need to borrow, I think banks will lend to you. Um, I think it would be better, though, to have four times debt to EBITDA and a year's worth of EBITDA on cash on hand at all times. Mm-hmm. I would rather see that. Um, uh, and then, um, you know, the, the but the other things have to do with, like, a major issue that you'll see is... Uh, I think Buffett even talked about this. It would be nice if the free cash flow, if the debt isn't too many years of actual free cash flow left over afterwards. See, what you're talking about is sort of like debt to EBITDA is a very private equity way of thinking about sure. it. But their exit plan isn't really to ever pay off the debt. It's to take the company public again or sell it or something. And then um, someone else will have to delever it. You know, The problem that you have as a shareholder is that a lot of um, – the things that you think are going to be used to buy back stock, pay dividends, fund growth, and whatever is really going to go to pay down the debt if there's too much of it. So, you know, if there's four or five years, let's say free cash flow is $10 million a year and the company has 40 or $50 million of debt, okay. If it is 80 or 90, I don't care what the debt to EBITDA is. That's just too many years of it. And yeah. it's going to be potentially a big problem for you in terms of uh, that so much of it's going to be used to deleverage. You have to remember that as a shareholder, you want to buy into a company that's overcapitalized and going to increase leverage while you own it mm-hmm. and avoid companies that are overleveraging and decreasing returns. it. Yeah, exactly. You want to be in the situation where you own it while it leverages up. You never want to be in a situation where you own a business that's deleveraging. Got it. Um, shareholders' equity? 
right? That we could go down to that list. Yeah. So shareholders equity doesn't really matter except in terms of tangible equity with some businesses where it's a real constraint on their earnings. So, you know, banks, tangible equity matters. We've talked about that a little bit, mostly for regulatory reasons and things like that. Mm -hmm. But it also can matter for companies that have... um, uh, I was looking at a car dealer recently or something. It's just a very capital intensive business. We talked about Monarch Cement. Yeah. So you can often like try to figure out what you think the return reasonable returns might be based on their um, amount of tangible equity that they have. In terms of including goodwill and all that stuff, it doesn't matter to me. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you take out goodwill. Yeah. People ask this question all the time. Yeah. Um, the, the basic thing is that that doesn't tell you anything about the business. Yeah, just- Things like goodwill, um, that, that's going to tell you just basically what their past acquisitions and stuff are done at. So it might be a way to, to look at management's past capital allocation, but it's not a useful way to think about the business. Mm-hmm. No. Okay, so we just went over the assets, the liabilities, sure. shareholder equity. What calculations do you typically do when you're looking at a balance sheet? So I know you had just in the beginning of that episode, right. you talked about current assets to total liabilities. Right. What else do you do? So do you take like a cash flow measure on um, like return on assets, for example, or how sure. do you typically do that? Yeah. So the easiest, so the most important ones are usually um, done by taking something from the income statement and then comparing it to the balance sheet. So the big ones are turn so um inventory turns yeah so sales divided by um net tangible assets okay is the first one but then also sales divided by cost of goods sold um you can also just use uh, uh i mean uh, excuse me cost of goods sold divided by inventory um but the uh the the, the reason for doing that gets i mean the reason why you would do that is to see how much the actual turn is versus like how much the, the profit is uh mm-hmm. causing that to look like a, you have high turns a good example would be like um tandy so tandy leather doesn't have very high turns, but it does have very high gross margins. Mm-hmm. So as a result, its sales look very high compared to the amount of inventory that it has. But the actual physical amount of inventory turning in terms of how long it stays in the stores and stuff isn't very good. It's just that it's marked up a lot. Mm-hmm. And so that causes you to think that there's high turns when really there isn't. Whereas you take a supermarket or something, it's the reverse. Um, so it, you can use both sales, but also cost of goods sold. Um, also, the same thing, you can look at turns in terms of property, plant, and equipment. And I break it down, each of those things, usually. I mean, I did a big report that subscribers to the website can see on Hunter Douglas, and we get more into detail of exactly why it earns what it does. And it gets into like things of how much PP&E they have, which is significant for them, and why we think that means they can't earn too much based on that. You know. Yeah. Um, the other thing that's really simple on the balance sheet, though, is whenever you see this, you can just do the percentage of each thing um, – uh, of each of the items on it as a percent of the total assets, right? So you're um, just going to go down and you're going to say like, okay, so how much is receivables? It's really easy to eyeball these I, things. I do that yeah. because you kind of get a good feel for the business, right. I think, yeah. So if receivables are 5% of total assets yeah. or if receivables are 80% or something, and then you know what to pay attention to. Like I'm talking all this stuff about inventory, but if inventory is this tiny number that doesn't matter, then mm-hmm. then let's not talk about it. If and over receiv- time, you do learn to kind of eyeball it, but it's yeah. a good, I think it's still good to kind of illustrate it. Right, absolutely. It's like a roadmap, you know? Yeah, so I would use those Percentages. And the same thing on the liability side, where that gives you some idea of like, okay, well, what if they could change something about their um, uh, working capital cycle or something like, you know, do they depend a lot on the deferred revenue? And if they change their business model so they didn't have that deferred revenue, would that be a big problem, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, and usually things like that aren't going to change, but sometimes the company will tell you, you know, oh, we're planning to change the way we do our distribution centers and our stores and things. We're going to carry more inventory or whatever. So it helps to know what the balance sheet looks like and then to know how much that matters. Sure, yeah. Right? Um, now, like return on equity. Obviously, you speak a yeah. lot about that on the podcast. And yeah. it's a big part of your, I guess, your investing process and the way right. you think about things. So how, um, for example, Apple, 
how would you think about their return on equity? Or like, what would you do, I guess, when you're looking at a new company? Generally, how do you think about the thing that equity? I, okay, so there's a few ways of looking at it. One is like a pre-tax number on their net to tangible so like EBIT? assets. Yeah, EBIT. Um, I actually just use gross profits, EBITDA, EBIT, and free cash flow. I check all of them. Um, to see what the differences are. There are not going to be a lot of big differences in many cases, but sometimes you'll see very big differences and it matters a lot. So like with a very small company that's having problems with scale, it might have very high gross returns on its assets. And that's a very good sign if it's going to be quickly growing that it's going to have really impressive economies of scale and is going to eventually become a very high returning business. You probably could see that in Apple's history where when it was first just emerging from having problems, yeah. it already was having high gross returns, but it wasn't yet delivering really high returns on equity until it got a huge amount of scale and the returns on equity would get really big. You want to avoid companies where the gross returns are really poor because it's very hard to grow your way out of that. Sure. Yeah. And then, um, the, yeah, the return on the net tangible assets is what I focus on, which like I, I think I've said before, a really easy way to just guess at what that is, is you take um, uh, receivables plus inventory plus property plan and equipment and you subtract accrued expenses and accounts payable. Mm-hmm. And that number usually for most companies equity. is the actual tangible equity that you yep. know is in the business. Now, so there's some other stuff that might be in the business. Um, and there's some other stuff that might be a liability. That means you don't have to put the money in yourself as a shareholder. There might be deferred revenue or something. But what I just gave you is for many companies going to be a really quick approximation that you can do like in a you know, split second basically, mm-hmm. yeah. Cool. Well, that is the end of the podcast going over the balance sheet. We'll probably do another video going over the income statement too. I think it's good. I mean, a lot of people I think are always interested to learn about like 10Ks and and financial statements. Mm -hmm. And even if they understand accounting and like what the line item means, line items mean, I think they like to just hear about how you sort of interpret it into the vesting, you know, process. Mm -hmm. So I think it's good to do that. So I want to thank everybody so much uh, for following along. If you want to get access to Jeff's free weekly gazette that goes out, uh, you could get on our email list, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com and be sure to sign up there. If you're watching this on YouTube, thank you so much. Hit that subscribe button and thumbs this video up. Everybody else, I want to thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you in the next podcast. Take care. Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock right up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.